All right. Let's grab our seats, and if you would uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And before we, before we read our passage, let's just, once again, let's just give this time to the Lord, ask Him to honor the reading of His Word this morning. So, Father, God, we, we thank You for Your presence with us this morning. God, we thank You that, God, that You are here. God, that You inhabit the praises of Your people. Lord, that You just allow us to enter in and to join with You. Lord, as we come into your house to worship you, Lord, to read and study your word, would you go before us? Lord, would you honor the reading of your word this morning? God, would you speak and minister to us, Lord? And only what you have for us this morning be remembered and be taken from this place, God. We invite you here with us this morning. Pour out your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 7, we will uh, pick up in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 14. So God's word reads, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So as we pick up our study in the Gospel of Matthew, you know, we have been working through the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon of the King, right? Consisting of chapters 5, 6, and 7 is this sermon of Jesus that we call the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, Jesus was dealing with what we are. Jesus describes to us in chapter 5 what we are, that we are blessed, that we are righteous, that we are perfect. 
speaking of our position in him, not of ourselves. I'm not perfect. But in Christ, on my position in him, he has made us perfect. He has made us righteous. And he has made us blessed. And then started in chapter 6, Jesus begins dealing not just with what we are, but he begins to deal with what we do. What we do, speaking of our actions, speaking of our deeds. In chapter 6, we learn that Jesus gives us a command. In in verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus gives us a command. He says to take heed, to take heed, to pay attention to, to hold on to. And he's been telling us to give attention to. He's been telling us to hold on to several things. As we've been working through chapter 6 and now coming to chapter 7, right, he's been telling us to pay attention to giving, pay attention to praying, to pay attention to forgiving, fasting, storing, to hold on to serving, and worrying, to pay attention to worrying. A couple weeks ago, right, we, we learned that we don't need to worry, right? Something that I know we are all guilty of, but that we have no reason to worry, that it all belongs to him. He is in control of all things. He will take care of it. In fact, In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, it says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We belong to him, and he will take care of us. And so we know that there is nothing we should be worried about. Well, Matthew chapter 7 kind of continues this thought, continues this idea of things that we need to take heed of, things that we need to pay attention to. In fact, in this passage this morning, there are four more things that we want to consider. Yeah, you guessed it. Four points this morning that we want to look at And I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll drop back, and we'll look at each one individually. The first thing that he is going to tell us to take heed of is judging. Judging. And then he's going to ask us to consider asking, judging, asking, doing, and then lastly, entering. So we need to take heed of judging. We need to take heed of asking. We need to take heed of what we're doing. And then we need to take heed of entering. And so as we come to what I'm sure you're all excited about, judging, that we need to take heed of, pay attention to judging. He gives us a command there In verse 1 of chapter 7, he says, Judge not. Judge not that you be not judged. So there's three things that we want to look at in terms of judging. Three things that we want to consider. And the first is 
the commandment about judging. The commandment about judging. And it's simply, judge not. Do not judge. And the, the grammar, right, judge not, the grammar in the Greek is such that it implies that it is something that we are already doing and we need to stop. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, I know you are already judging and you need to stop. You shouldn't be doing it. In fact, I mean, let's face it, we all judge, don't we? You don't believe me? Tell me again about that car that cut you off on the way here this morning. Tell me again about that coworker that makes you do all the work. Tell me again about that family member that just can't seem to get their life together. Right? This is something that we do, isn't it? This is something that we're all guilty of if we're going to be honest with each other. And Jesus here is saying, I know you are judging others. Judge not. Stop. Don't do it. That word judge in the Greek is the Greek word krino. It's the Greek word krino. It's used 113 times in the New Testament. It means to separate. It means to divide, to choose. We might say to draw a conclusion. To draw a conclusion. And what it's speaking of, what it's doing is it's carrying the idea of us judging the motives. Judging the motives behind what people are doing. In other words, we are not to judge why someone did what they did. Right? That that's not for us to judge. And Jesus is telling us that we need to stop. Judging the motives, judging the why, is something that God does. Something that belongs to him. Jesus can judge the motive because Jesus knows the heart. See, we don't know what's in someone's heart. We don't know what's going on in that person's life. I don't know why that person cut me off this morning. I just know that they did it, right? Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God says, I search the heart. I'm the one that tests the mind, God says. To give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. This is something that belongs to the Lord. Jesus was speaking to the churches in Revelation uh, 2 and 3. In Revelation 2.23, he says, All the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to to your works. It's what Jesus does. He's the one that searches the hearts. He's the one that judges the motives of what we're doing. John 5.22 says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Right? It is Jesus who judges. That it's been given to him. James 4.12 says, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. 
Who are you to judge another? So, can we judge? Are we allowed to judge? And the short answer is no, but yes. We are not to judge the motive. We are commanded to not judge the motive, but rather the action. Let me explain. We can't judge the inward motives of someone, but we are to judge the outward actions. See, Jesus tells us that we cannot crino, we cannot judge, we cannot draw a conclusion. But there is another Greek word. It's called diacrino. Crino means to divide, to conclude, to separate. Diacrino means to discern, to understand thoroughly. So, discern what? And I think the answer is simple. We judge, we discern between two things. Between right and wrong. We discern between right and wrong. 1 Corinthians 6, 1-3 says, Dare any of you, have any matter against another, go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you and you are unworthy to judge the smallest matters, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? We're not to judge the motives, the inward part. But we do need to discern between right and wrong, right? And we need to call it out when we see it. So we are to judge, just not people's motives. Not the heart behind the matter. That's God's job. God knows the heart. And he can judge appropriately knowing what's in the heart. So question, how do we discern between what is right and wrong? How do we do that? What does that look like in our lives? Is it based on how I feel? I don't think so. Feelings can be deceived, can't they? I mean, let's face it, oftentimes... How we feel is often based on what we had for dinner last night, right? Feelings change. Emotions change. In fact, there was a a newspaper columnist uh, by the name of George Crane. He tells the story of a wife who came into his office full of hatred toward her husband. And she says, I don't want to just get rid of him. I want to get even. I want to get even before I divorce him. I want to hurt him as much as he's hurt me. And so Dr. Crane suggests this plan. He says, go home 
and act as though you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait that he has. Go out of your way to be kind to him. Consider it. Be as generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. After you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him, then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That will really hurt him. So with revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, Beautiful. Beautiful. Will he ever be surprised? And so she did it with enthusiasm, acting as if for two months she showed love, kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, sharing. And when she didn't return, Crane called and asked her, are you ready now to go through with your divorce? Divorce, she said. Never. I discovered I really do love him. You see, her actions changed how she felt. Motion resulted in emotion in her life. No, it's not based on feelings. We don't judge right and wrong based on how we feel today or tomorrow or next week. You ever hear the phrase, well, I did what I felt was right? No. No, this right here is how we determine what's right and wrong. The Word of God is the barometer in which we judge every single action. The things we do, the things we see other people do is determined by what's in this book. This book delineates between truth and lie, between right and wrong, between righteous and evil. This is the only book that is the key to life. It's not how we feel. It's not which way the culture or which way society is going. Those things don't matter. What matters is what's in this book. Are we living according to what it says? And let the motives of the heart be left to God. We live our lives. We judge according to what this book says. We're not to judge the motive behind what is done. That's God's job. But we are to judge the actions. And we're to judge those actions based on what the Word of God says. Well, back to Matthew chapter 7. We have the command not to judge, but we also have the reason why we should stop judging. Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged with the measure you use. It will be measured back to you. We are commanded to stop judging, right? Stop judging the motives of people's hearts because we will be judged in like manner, right? The measure of judgment we use will be measured back to us. 
Paul says in Romans 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things are doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, the measure that we use to judge is the same measure that will be brought back to us. You know, it's interesting that, you know, when, when we see others mess up, when we see others fall short, we think, well, they're going to get what they deserve. They're going to get what's coming to them. But when I mess up, when I fall short, God, mercy, mercy. See, it's in our nature. We want God to judge us according to mercy. And Jesus is saying if, if we want mercy, then we also should be showing mercy. You see, we can't say, you're going to get what you deserve and then ask God to give us mercy. Well, you see, God, you don't, you don't, you don't understand what's going on in my life. You don't understand what I'm going through. Well, yes, he does. I don't understand what might be going on in your life. I might not understand the motives and the reasons for what's going on, but God does. So when we cry out mercy, we should be willing to give mercy also. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done whether good and bad. You see, we're all going to stand before God and we're all going to give an account for what we did and the motive, the heart behind why we did it. That's God's job. Jesus is the one that's going to judge those things. We should be willing to show mercy to one another. Because how we judge others is how God will judge us, right? Not our salvation, right? That was dealt with on the cross, right? That judgment happened on the cross. But our works, the things we're doing, the things we're saying. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will touch, test each one's work and of what sort it is. See, so the things that we're doing, the actions that we have, the motive behind those actions, it will all be tested out through fire. Right? We're going to stand before the Bema Seat of Christ and have to give an account for the things that we've done, the things we've said, and the reason we did them. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, 
And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And then he gives us a couple illustrations. Right? The third point we want to consider in terms of judging is not just the command to not judge. It's not just the reason we should stop judging, but the illustrations he gives us about judging. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, there's a plank in your eye. Hypocrite, he says. First you have to remove the plank from your own eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Jesus here gives us two illustrations, two illustrations regarding judging, helping others and giving to others. Helping others. What does it mean to help others? Does it mean we shouldn't help others? No, right? Of course not. We want to help one another. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You see, we have to be careful. So often, right, we look on and we consider the problems, the difficulties, the struggles in someone else's life. And we fail to consider our own. So we all have problems in our lives. Spoiler alert. It's the same problem that you and I have. And oftentimes, and this is the the, the point that Jesus is trying to illustrate, oftentimes the problem in my life is greater than the problem in yours. So why am I trying to fix your problem when I have a bigger one in my own life to deal with? Why am I trying to correct your sin when I have a greater sin in my own? This is the point that Jesus is trying to illustrate. So often we like to point the finger because so often the sin in your life, for whatever reason, looks ten times worse than the sin in my own. Right? Because I'm saying, God, mercy. But yet we don't want to show the same mercy to each other. Jesus is saying, don't, don't focus on the speck in your brother's eye when there's a plank in your own. Paul says that there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said there's no such thing as a good person. Right? Romans 3.23, a verse we know well. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How dare us think that we are somehow better than someone else? That we have less problems than that person. Jesus says, hypocrite. 
Why is it that when we see sin in someone else's life, why is it that it seems to look worse than the sin in our own? No, we need to have a heart like David had. Right? It was David in Psalm 139 who said, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. David says, search me. We should spend more time having ourselves searched out than searching out the sins in other people. Search me, O God, and know my heart. So that we can help others. I'm not saying we should ignore each other. Listen, if there's a brother and sister that you know that is struggling with sin, we should be there to pull them up and to rise them out of that. But not to point the finger and say, how dare you? Can't believe you did that thing. Can't believe you're struggling with that problem. We all have problems. We all struggle. And we should be able to build each other up and lift each other up, encourage one another. Then Jesus says this other interesting thing, this other interesting illustration at the, uh, at the end. In verse 6, he says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. What is he talking about? What does he mean? Don't cast pearls before swine. Don't give what is holy to dogs. We have to remember, he's in context, he's talking about judging, right? He's talking about judging one another. He's talking about discerning, dividing, separating, drawing a conclusion. And I think what Jesus is saying is that we need to judge. We need to discern and understand between dogs and swine, those who are dogs and swine and who are not. So we have to understand that Jesus is a Jew, and he's writing from a Jewish perspective, that Matthew, the gospel writer here, is a Jew writing to a Jewish audience. You see, when he says dogs, this is not your domesticated dog at home. Okay, when he says swine, this is not that little pop belly pig that you put a leash on. No, these were reprehensible to the Jew. These were wild dogs. These are swine. Now, if you were to go to Israel today and get breakfast, you would not find bacon and sausage on your plate. These are foreign to them. It's not kosher. And what Jesus is saying is you need to judge. I think what he's talking about here is we need to discern who is open to the gospel, and who is not. You see, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out, right? He sends them out on this journey to share the gospel. And he tells them, now, whatever city or town that you enter, he tells them to inquire who is in it, who is worthy And to stay there until you go out. And when you go out into the household, greet it. 
If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. He says, he tells them, whoever will not receive you and hear your words when you depart from that house or that city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. And I think what Jesus is talking about is that we are not to waste our time with people who are going to tear the gospel to pieces. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't share the gospel. I'm not saying we shouldn't minister. We should always be sharing the gospel with everyone. But there comes a point, right, when we realize that this just isn't fruitful. That our time might be better spent with someone who is open and willing to receive the gospel. You know, I think there is a fine line here because what Jesus is, he's not telling us that we should not share the gospel. Please don't misunderstand me. We should always be seeking to share the gospel with everybody. You know, this was many years ago, but there was a a third-party distributor that would come to my work and he would drop off uh, tires, right? He was a tire distributor. So when we ordered tires. There was always the same guy who would come in and drop off the tires, and it was always like right next to my, my bay where I worked. And you, know, you see this guy several times a week. You get to know him. You know, you make small talk. Small talk becomes something else, and he always liked to debate, right? He always liked to debate the science between evolution and the craziness of creation theory, right? And these, these conversations would just kind of keep building. And I got to a certain point where I finally came to him. And I'm like, listen, if I was able to prove to you, scientifically or whatever, without a shadow of a doubt that God is real and that he died for your sins, would you believe? Enough with this nonsense of theory and whatever, whatever. Honestly, if I could prove it to you with facts, would it change your mind? And he said, no, probably not. I said, well, then why are we having these conversations? Right? Jesus says, don't cast what is holy before dogs or your pearls before swine. See, there are people out there that are willing to receive, willing to hear the gospel. And we need to be able to discern between that. Well, we are to share the gospel with everyone, but we need to use discernment. We need to be able to determine who is open to the Lord and who is not. Because at some point, we need to be willing to shake off the dust from our feet and move on to a more fruitful conversation. Well, let's come to the second point this morning. We have to hurry. Not only are we not to judge, but we're commanded to ask. We're commanded to ask. Look at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Jesus commands us to ask. He commands us to seek. He commands us to knock. 
Ask, seek, and knock. And it's not just a command. It's not just a command. It is in the present tense. And it's in the active voice. In other words, we could better say Jesus is telling us to keep on continually asking. Keep on continually seeking. Keep on continually knocking. Don't stop asking. Don't stop seeking and don't stop knocking. And it is obvious that Jesus is directing us to prayer. Right? To ask, to seek, to knock. And the question is, what are we asking for? In context of what Jesus has been telling us, what are we asking for? What are we seeking? What are we knocking on? Right? What door are we knocking on that we're asking the Lord to open up to us? And I think, I think what he wants from us is wisdom. I think what we should be asking for, I think what we should be seeking, I think the door we should be knocking on is for wisdom. See, experience comes from what we have done. Wisdom comes from what we have done badly. Wisdom. Wisdom to judge the action, not the motive. Wisdom to see the planks in our own eye and not focus on the speck in our brother's eye. Wisdom to be able to discern who is open to the gospel and who is not. I think in context, this is what Jesus is talking about. Keep on asking, keep on seeking. Right? James 1, 5, if, anyone, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Because God gives to all liberally and without reproach, it will be given to him. We are told to ask for wisdom. To seek it out. To knock on its door. Because notice in verses 8 through 11, not only does he command us to keep on asking... Right? But we have confidence in our asking. We have confidence. He says in verse 8, For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Right? And then he uses another illustration. He says, well, I mean, what man is there among you who... Right, if his son asks for bread, we'll give him a stone. Right, if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Right, rhetorical question, of course not. If you then, being evil, and you are, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? Listen, if we ask, it will be given. If we seek, it will be found. If we knock, the door will be opened. Right? And he uses here common sense logic. Right? If we have a son or if we have a daughter and they ask for a piece of bread, we're not, here, here's a stone. Chew on that, kid. Of course not. Right? If they ask for a, a, a fish, here's a serpent. Play with that. Right? And he's using this logic saying, if you, who are evil, because let's face it, in our flesh, at the very core, we are evil. That's why we need Jesus. 
That's why he had to go to the cross. Because we are sinful, Jeremiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And knowing that above our, about ourselves, but we're able to give good gifts to our children, he says, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? The thing is, we have to ask. We have to seek. We have to knock on the door. James says that if you ask for wisdom, he will give it to you liberally. The truth is, God wants to bless us. He wants to. He wants us to judge rightly. He wants us to use discernment. But we need to ask, we need to seek, and we need to knock. Well, let's come to the third thing we learn this morning. The third command that is given to us in this passage There's judging, there's asking, but then there's the doing. The doing, where the rubber meets the road, right? In verse 12, Jesus says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. The doing. Therefore. Right? In other words, Jesus is saying, we might say, because of, in light of this, based on everything I have just said, therefore, knowing this, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is what we should be doing. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. We might call it the golden rule, right? The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The world has a golden rule too. It's he who has the gold makes the rules. (laughs) No, but we are told to do unto others as we would want them do unto you. Right? If we want people to love us, then we should show love. Right? If, If we want to be respected, we should show respect. If we want to receive mercy, we should be merciful. Do unto others. Jesus says we need to treat others the way we want to be treated. And listen, regardless of how they treat you. Nowhere in here does Jesus say, if they treat you badly, you can treat them badly. No, Jesus says the action starts with you. You're the one that needs to do. You need to treat them how you want to be treated, regardless of how they're treating you. You say, Mitch, they don't treat me that way. How can I show them love when they don't love me? Doesn't matter. That's not what we're commanded. We're commanded to show love regardless how they treat us. This is a command. Jesus is commanding us to treat others the way we want to be treated. And did you notice at the end there? The end of verse 12? For this is the law and the prophets. What does that mean? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this is the law and the prophets. 
Treating others the way we want to be treated. How does that equate to the law and the prophets? I think simply, it's love. If you could condense it down into a word, it's love. It's love. Romans 13.10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of what? The law, right? Love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, in Matthew chapter 22, there's a lawyer that comes to Jesus and asks Jesus a question. In verse 35, it says, One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then he says, the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, and that these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. So what is Jesus saying? We should treat each other the way we want to be treated because it fulfills the law and the prophets. We need to love one another. We need to show love, regardless of whether we get love back in return. We are to be a people of love. We need to love others. Why? Because that is how God loves us. Unconditionally. John said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, God loved us first. He is the definition of love. We know what it is to love because he first loved us. If it wasn't for God, we wouldn't know what love is. We wouldn't have a definition for it. But it's because of his work because of what he has done for us that gives us that definition. That we are to love others. We are to love others because God loved us first and that his love is unconditional. And that brings us to our fourth and our final point this morning. And it's the point of entering. It's the point of entering. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jesus is commanding us. Again, these are all commands. These are in the imperative in the Greek. We're commanded to enter by the narrow gate, he says. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So we're commanded not to judge, We are commanded to ask, to seek, to knock. We are commanded to love. And we're commanded to enter. Right? And there's two things that we want to note about entering. More specifically, there's two gates that can be entered that Jesus gives us here. There is the wide gate 
and there is the narrow gate. Let's start with the wide gate, shall we? The wide gate, the broad gate, he says. The path that is heavily traveled. You know, in ancient walled cities, there was always a main gate, a large, wide gate. Right? A gate that supported a lot of heavy foot traffic. The gate that most people would enter to the city through. Jesus tells us that the wide gate, the popular gate, the broad gate, the heavily traveled gate, Jesus says that this gate leads to destruction. Leads to destruction. You see, it may look exciting, it may look appealing, it may look easy, it may look convenient. After all, everyone's going through this gate, why shouldn't I? This is the gate of the world. This has become a popular opinion nowadays, hasn't it? All roads lead to heaven. All roads lead to God. All religions take you to the same place. You're just taking a different path to get there. This has become the popular opinion. This is what's being preached in so many churches today. As long as you're sincere, you'll get there. It doesn't matter if it's this path or that path or this gate or that gate. It doesn't matter. As long as you're sincere, you'll get there. They say, you can believe in Jesus. You can believe in Jesus and knock on this many doors. You can believe in Jesus and pray this many prayers. You can believe in Jesus just as long as you rub this many beads. You can believe in Jesus just as long as you wear this special kind of underwear. Right? This is what's being taught and preached. Listen, Jesus says that this gate leads to destruction. The wide gate, the popular gate. Jesus says to enter through the narrow gate. The narrow gate, he says, leads to life. See, not unlike the wide gate, Walled cities also had a small, narrow gate. You see, at night when the, the, the main gate, right, the wide gate, the popular gate, when that gate is closed, the only way in and out of that city was through the narrow gate. And it was small, right? You're not going through this gate riding your animal. You're not going through this gate with all of your stuff. You see, it was there to allow people in and out, but it provided protection. So it was small. It was narrow. It was difficult to get in and out of. The idea is simple. There is only one way. There is only one gate to get into God's kingdom. There's only one way. It's through the narrow gate. It is through the person of Jesus Christ. 
That is it. There's no other way. You say, Pastor Nish, that's awful narrow. Yes. Yes, it is. That is his point. The narrow gate. It is meant to be difficult. Notice he says that there. The narrow gate is difficult. It's the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door. Jesus says, I am the door, and anyone who enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. I am the door. Not many. There's one path. There's one door. There's one gate. And it is the person of Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, life, and that no one comes to the Father. Right? No one comes to the Father except through me. It is narrow. It is exclusive. It is only Jesus. That is it. There is no other way. Jesus is the narrow gate. And listen, Jesus says it will be difficult. It's not an easy decision. You might be persecuted. You might be disowned by your family. You might be mocked and ridiculed. You might go through trials and tribulation. In fact, Jesus promises you'll go through trials and tribulations. Jesus promises it'll be difficult. Why? Because he wants to make sure it's sincere. He wants to make sure you truly believe in him and it's not just lip service. Listen, going through the correct door leads to life. Any other door, any other path, any other way leads to destruction, Jesus says. Listen, we all have choices to make. We all have decisions to make in life. But choosing Jesus is the single most important thing you can ever do. It is the single most important decision you will ever make. Which door are you walking through this morning? Which gate do you want to take? Because wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and I'll close with this. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, he says, choose life, that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and your length of days. Listen, We need to choose life. And to choose life means to choose the person of Jesus Christ, to put your faith and your trust in him. 
There was no one else this morning that offers life. There is no other gate. There is no other way. And if you have not this morning put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you're endeavoring to go through the wide gate, the popular path, the popular opinion, the easy way, I encourage you this morning, choose life. Choose Jesus. Choose the narrow gate. He is the door. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one goes to the Father if not through the person of Jesus Christ. Choose life this morning. Let me pray for you. Let me pray with you. Father, we thank you. We praise you this morning, God, that you provided a gate that we can walk through, that you provided a narrow path. God, you are our Savior, Lord. You went to that cross for us. Lord, you died and you paid the penalty so that we could enter through that narrow gate. Lord, it said, Lord, when, when you died on the cross, Lord, that the veil in the temple was rent in two, granting us access into your presence. So God, this morning, if we don't know you, if we haven't put our faith and our trust in you, Lord, today is the day of salvation, God. And we proclaim this morning Lord, that we are sinners, that we have fallen short, and we proclaim this morning that we need you, that you are the door, you are the only way, and that we are coming through you, through your narrow gate. God, we thank you that you have provided it. God, we thank you that you've allowed us a way, and you've granted us access. We praise you this morning. God, behind, lifted up in our lives. Go before us the rest of today. And God, this morning we just say that we love you and we thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.